Jennifer and I were with the crew, kids, and several others over in Beaverton, and just what an incredible time uh, that was, and um, I'm so grateful for that week. I will actually be gone again next week as uh, I will be uh, doing a wedding in Beaverton once again. So now that we're home, I'm just going to drive right back next week. But we are going to continue in the book of Matthew. And so uh, for me, it's a little bit of a bittersweet Sunday because I get to be back and, uh, and my favorite place to be on a Sunday morning is, is with you all. Um, my daughter was part of uh, the VBS this week as she lives over there and she, uh, you know, it's always good to see her and she, she whispered to me at the end of the day, she's like, can you move here? And I was like, no, <laughs> I love you, but, uh, but home is, is here. Um, and so it's really, really good to be back. Uh, that's the sweet part of it. The bitter part of it is uh, we have a goodbye to say. And uh, I saw Ernie and Teresa Steinley come in this morning. And I saw you at one point, and now I've lost you. Where are you guys at? There you are, right there. Is this your last Sunday? Not sure yet. I know moving starts next weekend. Um, but, uh, man, I'm excited for what's next. I am thrilled for whatever church gets to receive you on that end. It will be a blessing to them no doubt, uh, God has an amazing ability to put his people where he needs them, when they need them, and that church and that community will be a blessing to have you. We, however, are going to grieve our loss because you are loved, you are dear to us, you have served the Lord well by serving us well, and so we just want to tell you that we love you and will miss you deeply, and thank you for, for being a part of us. We love you. And we're going to pray for you as we, we uh, turn to the Lord in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we, um, we just want to pause in, in this moment and just um, thank you, really thank you for the relationships you give us in the church. We thank you for the depth of those relationships. We thank you for all that it means that those goodbyes are not easy. Because there's been so much sweetness there. And so, Lord, um, we just want to express our gratitude uh, to you for Ernie and Teresa and for the time that we've had with them and um, just for the ministry that they've had to us and, and to you and the blessing that they are. Lord, I just pray that, um, that on the other end of this, that, that there would be a church waiting for them with hearts wide open that they would be received into fellowship quickly, that the speed at which they develop meaningful uh, and grace-filled relationships would be a blessing to them. Lord, we know that, um, that by your spirit and your word, uh, you can do incredible things in our lives together quickly. And so we pray that for them, Lord. We pray that it would be an immeasurable blessing for them beyond what they can, can understand even now, Lord, in terms of ministry to that church, uh, the spread of the gospel in the community, um, and just uh, Ernie's work as he, as he moves to this community there in, in Colorado. And so, Lord, we just, uh, we thank you for them, and we, we ask them to bless them immeasurably more than we could ask 
or imagine as they go, Lord, and, and comfort us, um, Lord, as in the life of the church we say goodbye far too often in this life, but, um, but Father, I look forward to eternity where the depth of our relationships with people will be infinitely beyond what we can comprehend uh, in this life and, and in this moment. And so, um, Father, just, just comfort us all that, uh, that, that whether it be in this life uh, at certain points in time, but certainly in the next, that we will just have great fellowship and joy with them centered around the praise of you for eternity. And so we're grateful for that, Lord. Lord, we want to pray for a couple of our missions partners this morning. We want to pray for uh, the Brennans, who uh, we, we just want to continue to pray for them this month and their transition into their furlough. And uh, Lord, we just pray that John and Aaron and the kids would just have a, um, just a tremendously restful and joyful and healing time, that it would be sweet with family, that, that they would not only connect with other churches, but connect well with us. God, let us have those open hearts and homes and lives to them. Let us not assume that they need space in terms of rest, but that they want to engage with us meaningfully and relationally in terms of rest. And Lord, that, uh, that, that the relationships we offer them would be wonderful for them. Lord, we pray uh, with and for uh, Ted and Renati Rubish and Sri Lanka and the protests and government collapse and the difficulty getting gas and food and supplies and everything that's going on there. Lord, we thank you that they have reported being well provided for um, and, and we just thank you uh, for that in, in this time. But Lord, we just ask that you would, more than anything else, um, help them to, uh, to proclaim faithfully uh, the gospel of peace amidst unrest there. And, uh, and that people might see and hear the truth of what, what Christ has done, Lord. W would you give, not just them, but your whole church there in Sri Lanka, an incredible amount of peace and comfort and steadfastness in this time that just stands out in great contrast to everything else that's going on. Lord, as we, we look now to your word, just help us to have uh, clear minds to understand it, soft hearts to obey it. Challenge us, encourage us, and above all else, let us see the glory of Christ in it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for today will be Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Follow along as I read to you. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What comes to mind when I, I, I say the word trial? If you were to tell me that you were going through some kind of trial, 
what would that mean? Usually, I think for most of us, it means that we're faced with some kind of difficult circumstances in life. It could be grief, it could be loss, it could be uh, a lack of provision, it could be any number of things. But, but usually trial is this circumstantial event where something in our life is difficult. Contrast that to what comes to mind when I ask the word temptation. And most of us, when we think of temptation, think of being enticed towards sin, being enticed towards something that we, we, don't, we are not to do, and ultimately, really, that is not good for us, because that's what God forbids. It's not that God forbids what's good for us, it's that he forbids what's deadly to us. And I think if we think in terms of these, these words in that way, we're thinking rightly about what they mean. The interesting thing is when we read the, the Bible in the Greek, there is no distinction between those two words. There is not two separate words for temptation or trial. You just get this one word that can mean both, and context tells us what that, wor- what, what that word means. What it literally means, and why this is important, is, is to prove. It, it, the, the word temptation or trial, as we, tempt, uh, as we translate it, it literally means just proof as a noun or to prove as a verb. This is important because this is exactly what is happening to Jesus. He has had this monumental ministry moment at the end of chapter 3. He has been pronounced as the Messiah, not just the Messiah, as the Son of God, the one with whom God, the Father, is well pleased. John the Baptist, the forerunner, has has shown to the world who Jesus is. The Spirit of God has visibly uh, descended on him so that people could see this is the one in whom the Spirit is dwelling, and he begins his public ministry. But the first thing that happens after this monumental event, and if you've read through scriptures, you know this is often true, is people go immediately from the peak to the valley. And Jesus goes from from this monumental mountaintop pronouncement of his ministry as the Messiah, man, that's a lot of M's and that was not intentional, to hear this valley where he is led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted, to be tried, to be proven. I think sometimes we, uh, we don't think rightly about temptations, however, in terms of where they come from. See, Jesus is being led out into the wilderness in almost every English translation, and I believe rightly to, uh, translate this, to be tempted Not tried, not proven, tempted. But but is temptation wrong? Does this mean there's some fault in our Savior? I don't think it does, because what happens, the difference between a trial and a temptation is not what happens to us externally, but what happens to us internally. James captures this in chapter 1 of his letter, verses 13 to 15, when he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, would we say God tries nobody? 
You'd have to wrestle with 1 Corinthians to understand that. Yes, God leads us into difficulties to be proven. Read the book of Job. What James is saying is not that God does not bring trials into our lives for our good. What James is explicitly saying, and he clarifies this, is that God does not tempt anyone, and therefore no one should say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted, and here's the definition, here's why we know it's tempted, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Again, with evil. God brings difficult circumstances into your life that you might be proven And so we rejoice, as James says in chapter 1, when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing, the proving of our faith produces endurance. God does it for our good. I'm like watching the Tour de France every day right now, or at least the last 40 kilometers of the Tour de France. None of these guys got on a bike for the first time at the start of the tour. They go through many trials ahead of time, so that the testing of their skills as a cyclist might bring about endurance so that they can run the race that is set before them. And so God doesn't tempt us to evil. He doesn't say, oh, check this out. I'm going to try and entice this person to sin. James is clear. God never does that. He doesn't tempt anyone. But here's where it becomes bad news for us. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I'm trying to get back at my diet, and I have not been very successful lately. But this means that when my children bring ice cream into my house, the problem is not the ice cream. The problem is me. The problem is that I believe there is joy in the ice cream more than there is in God. The problem, the the temptation is not before me, it is within me. Which means if you've ever told anybody, you're tempting me, you are wrong. Because it's not the external thing that is the temptation. It is our own desires. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The thing in front of me that I desire becomes sin when I believe the lie that there is more joy in that thing than there is in the Lord. When I believe there is more happiness in that thing than there is in obedience to God. And this is exactly what we don't see happening with Jesus. He's been in the wilderness for 40 days. And he's hungry. I love that statement, by the way. There's nothing sensational here. It's not made up. It's not embellished. We just get this simple, truthful statement. He was in the wilderness 40 days and nights. It's an important definition because some fasts don't require you to fast at night. He had not eaten day or night for 40 days and he was hungry. And so when Satan comes to him and says, turn these stones into bread, 
which is an incredible admission of who Jesus is, is it not? That Satan understands him to have the power to command these stones to become bread. The temptation to do so might be real. 40 days, 40 nights, plus hunger equals a desire for bread. And no doubt in that moment, Jesus desires bread. But he's proven when his response shows a greater delight in God than in bread. And so that desire in him doesn't conceive sin because it understands things rightly. Clearly, the context here is that of temptation and that Jesus is being tempted to to evil. But... He does it successfully. And so our context is that Jesus is drawn out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tried, to be proven, even to be tempted by Satan as God knows what is going to happen. And then what happens next is of the utmost importance. I want to work our way through this text and kind of set the scene and some understanding. And then I want to look at four principles for faithful Christian living. So let's read this again. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit up here. We think in terms of up as, as a compass, like north is always up. Uh, they did not think of up that way. They thought of up in terms of elevation. So he is in the, the Jordan River Valley, and, and though uh, where he went in the Judean wilderness is probably not up as regards a compass, it is up in terms of elevation. And so he is led up into the Judean wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if. Now, this is interesting, and I don't need to go through all the details here, but, but this is in, what's Greek, in, in Greek what is called a first-class uh, conditional clause, which means it assumes a positive answer. It, it, it does not, it's not the statement that, that Jesus might be the Son of God. It, it, Satan is saying, because you are, since you are. If you want the details on first-class conditional uh, phrases, I can give those to you later. But, but really what Satan is saying is not, he's not bringing into question the deity of Christ. He is affirming it. Since you are the Son of God, command these stones... We don't know what stones these were, but he's in the Judean wilderness, in the desert. There's stones there. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Satan certainly knows he has the power to do so. But Jesus answered, and he gives us the same answer every single time it is written. Every single temptation he counters with Scripture. Now notice in this one, Satan has not used Scripture. He's just used circumstances. But Jesus counters with the word of God. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is Deuteronomy 8.3. And the context is remarkably similar. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, uh, in reference to Moses is preaching uh, this Deuteronomy is one sermon of Moses to the nation of Israel, and he's recapping all the events of the Exodus. And he says in Deuteronomy 8.3, And he, that is God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
This test that the Israelites failed, this test of hunger in the wilderness and relying on the provision of God that they sinfully responded to with grumbling and complaining and arguing and wishing for different circumstances, I think sometimes we fail to understand just how sinful complaint is. 1 Corinthians is clear on this. But the context is the same. The people are in the wilderness. God is providing for them. And they neglected the word of God for the provision of God. And so Jesus uses this verse that has an incredibly similar context to to battle Satan. To say, uh, Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now that's not the quote. The quote is Deuteronomy 8. But that's what Jesus does, right? He has stored God's word in his heart so that in this moment of temptation, he might fight. Mark this. Until God's words are so deeply ingrained in you that they become your words, you will never fight temptation well. Until God's words are so deeply ingrained in you that they are your words, you'll never fight temptation well. It was said, I believe, of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and other things, that if you were to cut him anywhere, he bled Bibline. He bled the Bible. I love listening to um, John Piper, in, in, just in, not in sermons necessarily, but just in regular speech. Because scripture just pours out of him as though it's his own language. And so Jesus fights this temptation with scripture. Then, next, the devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. The temple had no pinnacle. This is likely a a high um, not as in terms of how we think of it, but Herod had built up tremendous buildings around the temple, in the temple mount, as we might call it, and certainly all of that would be considered temple. And, and so there was these tall buildings uh, around the temple proper, and, and Satan pro- likely took Jesus up to one of these places and set him on the pinnacle uh, and said to him, again, since, if you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. I think really what he is offering him here is, and, and maybe I, I, as I studied further and I was really pinched to get my outline in, and so my second point on your outline may not be that good, I don't think what Satan is offering Jesus is mere safety here. That's what is being promised as he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Hey, just throw yourself off the temple and, and, and you will be, you'll be rescued. God will protect you. What, what more proof could there have been at the start of his ministry to his sonship, to his messiahship, than to stand at the height of the buildings around the temple in front of all the Jews and throw himself down and land safely as angels protect him. Oh, Jesus, you could be successful. You could be famous. You, you, could, you, you could be popular. Everything you're here to do might be fully realized if you would just do this. Jesus said to him again, it is written, 
you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And this is not testing like, uh, like fleece, like, Lord, show me. This is testing as in like when mom says, don't test me. You're testing my patience, boy. That's the kind of testing here. That they were testing God, trying God with sin. And Jesus is saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not try him with sin. You shall not exhaust him with sin. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their, and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is maybe the pinnacle of all of this because Jesus' mission was to come to live a sinless life, to die a substitutionary death, and in doing so, to gain a kingdom. He's eternally past been the ruler. He's given that up. He's lived on earth in the likeness of sinful flesh for 30 years. And he's three years away from his death and resurrection and kingdom. And Satan's like, look, you can have a kingdom. You can have it all without the cross. How many of us want the kingdom without the suffering? How many of us want the glory without the trial? How many of us want the goodness without the difficulty? There was no shortcut to the kingdom. It was straight through the cross. But Satan is tempting him with, hey, here's a kingdom without all the difficulty. I will give you the kingdom that you're here to gain if you'll just fall down and worship me. Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. It's an imperative. It's a command. Go away, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Of course he did. Jesus commanded him to. And behold, this is the fulfillment of verse 6, where he's told he'll, send his, he'll command his angels concerning you in Psalm 91. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The fulfillment of those Psalm 91 verses. With obedience, though, and not with sin. Well, let's get moving and let's look at four principles for faithful Christian living. How do we live like this? Well, there's two ways, actually. Number one, and this is going to be the first three points, we fight like Jesus fought. We fight temptation like Jesus fought. And then the fourth one, which is going to be the most important of everything we're going to look at today, we fight nothing like Jesus fought. So, number one, spiritual food is more life-giving than physical food. We fight like Jesus by understanding spiritual food is more life-giving than physical food. Jesus' retort here to Satan when he tempts him to turn these stones to bread does not suggest or imply that bread isn't important. Quite the opposite. It shows us that it is. Bread matters. Provision matters. Work, life, food, our next meal as Jesus prays later, as we'll see in Matthew chapter 5, give us this day our, uh, our bread sufficient for today, our daily bread. Physical food is important. 
But Jesus understands that there is something more important than physical food, and that is spiritual food. Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit Jesus to eat a meal and lose his soul? What does it profit Jesus to to sinfully turn these stones to bread by believing that there is more contentment in the bread than there is in obedience to his Father? He gains nothing. Jesus' actions here are the perfect illustration of that. He's hungry. He wants food. He can turn stones to bread, but rather he chooses to fight temptation with Scripture. And make no mistake, he's genuinely tempted here. It's not like he's like, well, I'm Jesus, this doesn't affect me. No, Hebrews 4.15 is clear that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's been tempted every way that you and I have. It's just what happened inside of him when that temptation came along was not sinful. He never bought the lie. That there's more pleasure, more glory, more goodness, more satisfaction, more joy in anything other than God. Let me ask you some questions. How long can you go without a meal before you start getting grumpy? How often do you use the excuse that you're hungry for bad behavior? Oh, I'm sorry, I haven't eaten in a while. I'm a little hangry. My blood sugar's low. How how long can you go without reading God's word before you start going through withdrawals? How long can you neglect spiritual food and not go through hunger pains? I hear people say things like, oh, I'm so busy, I don't have time to read, read God's word. Really, did you eat today? Now you know what fasting's for. Fasting's to remind us of what's ultimately important. My day is so busy today that I I feel like I don't have time. I'm going to give up physical food for spiritual food because I understand what's more important. How many Sundays a month do you consume a spiritual meal called a sermon? Do you? Maybe you're like, oh, I'm... Every Sunday. What happens between Sundays? Do you have a smorgasbord Sunday afternoon and then not eat again until the next Sunday afternoon? Or might you have a big meal today and then breakfast tomorrow? Maybe you, ah, I go to church about once a month and Read my Bible a couple times a month. I'll tell you what. You want an experiment in seeing where your priorities lie in terms of spiritual food and physical food. Don't eat any physical food until after you've feasted on God's word. See how your life might change. Here's one. What if we turned in the morning to our Bibles like we do to our cell phones? What might happen if we picked up God's word first? His words might become our words. We might begin to truly understand that spiritual food is more important 
than physical food. Secondly, number two, faithfulness is ultimately safer than self-protection. And I would probably add to this self-promotion. Because that's what Jesus is tempted with. Throw yourself off the temple. God's angels will rescue you. You will be seen as the Messiah. It's the ultimate uh, messianic campaign. Crawl up to the top of the Empire State Building. Jump off. Have angels rescue you. And then say, whatever, for president. Andrew told me he's running for president. I saw Andrew here somewhere, maybe. Andrew Gowen told me he's running for president in 2040. Of course, it was a joke. We got the campaign slogan and everything. When the going gets tough, the tough boat going. Now imagine his whole campaign strategy is to climb up to the top of a a tall building, throw himself off, and angels rescue him. It'd be a heck of a campaign. But Jesus understands that faithfulness is ultimately more important, ultimately safer than self-protection and self-promotion. I think there's a big lesson for us here as a church. I think the church in our day and age is willing to faithlessly promote itself with the sensational rather than faithfully adhering to God's plan. God has called us to faithful evangelism. God has called us to hospitality. God has commanded us to have open homes and open lives so that people can encounter the gospel out there from us. But he doesn't need us to orchestrate sensational things in here to try and promote himself. The call of the church is not one of sensationalism. It is one of faithfulness. Again, 1 Corinthians, Paul says this is how one should regard us. Apostles, gifted with miracles, by the way, as servants of Jesus Christ. House slaves is literally the word. House lawyers, actually. Stewards. As stewards of the mysteries of God. That's what pastors do. We steward the mysteries of God. And then Paul says, and moreover, a steward must be found faithful. Not sensational, faithful. Men, if you were going on a long journey, you were going to be away from your home for a long time, and you were hiring somebody to care for your home and your wife and your children, what characteristic would you be looking for? Women, what characteristic would you be looking for? Sensational or faithful? Faithfulness is ultimately safer than self-protection or self-promotion. Jesus wasn't interested in the sensational. He was interested in the faithful. Faithful to God's word. Faithful to the means given to him. Thirdly, worship 
we have to understand, if we want to fight temptation, we have to understand that spiritual food is more life-giving than physical food, that faithfulness is safer than self-protection or self-promotion, and thirdly, that worship is of greater worth than money or power. Satan offers Jesus what he'd already been promised by God, a kingdom, just without the hard way of getting there. But Jesus sees through it. He understands that Satan isn't ultimately offering him anything of value. But the offer is nonetheless made. This reminds me of Daniel when the king says, I'll make you second in command and I'll give you all of these things. And Daniel's like, keep it. Doesn't mean anything. Because worship is about worthiness. That's what the word means. It's about proclaiming what is ultimately worthy, worthy, valuable. And Jesus is not about to declare himself, not himself, this, this kingdom that Satan offers in this way as more important than faithfulness to God. God alone is worthy of worship, not Satan. That's the demand. I'll give it all to you if you'll worship me instead. Maybe, some of the, maybe we buy into some of these lies. What is it that you believe is going to give you satisfaction and joy and health and wealth and happiness and life and prosperity? What is it that's consuming so much of your time that you're too busy to open God's word? You'll find where you're believing the lie. Oh, if I just work more, I'll be happy. If I just play more, I'll be happy. If I just rest more, I'll be happy. If I just have more, I'll be happy. I heard one of the teenagers on the trip this week jokingly say, oh, if I just have that thing, I'll be happy. She got it. What is it that you believe is more worthy, is of greater worth than God? Because if you follow the trail of your money and your time and your energy, you'll find your God at the end of it. All of this is important. All of this are ways to fight temptation like Jesus, to know God's word, to rightly employ God's word. That's a really important point here. Notice in the second part that Satan uses scripture. It is not simply the presence of scripture that makes something right. It is the right use of scripture that makes something right. Satan can twist and abuse scripture. I'd go so far as to say Satan probably knows it better than you and I. Do you know it well enough to spot it when he's twisting it? This is the garden tactic. This was his attack in Genesis 3. Did God really say? And then he gives mostly truth with a little bit of lie. But it's enough to break down the whole thing. And it's exactly what he does to Jesus here. He uses scripture. Why do I talk about, well, this is what this means in the Greek? Because I don't ever want to stand up here and say, oh, this is what this means, trust me. The Bereans in Acts were more noble because they examined Scripture for themselves. I want to show you why I think it means what it means. And then you should go back and look at it and see if you agree with me or not. You should test everything I say against God's Word. Because ultimately, it's important. The only infallible part of any one of my sermons is when I'm reading the Bible. Everything else is subject to error. Satan uses Scripture He's a master at twisting truth. He's been doing it since Genesis 3. 
and, and all of this shows us how to fight temptation, to rightly employ Scripture, to understand that God is more worthy and more joyful than anything else, to understand that worship is of greater worth, of greater importance than money or power or prestige or a kingdom or anything else. But that's not ultimately what this text is about. If that's all we see here is three steps to fighting temptation, we have failed to see the glory of this passage. Hang on, because this is incredible. Number four, Jesus is perfect in every way I'm not. That's really what we're being shown here, that Jesus is, is perfect in every way I'm not. Look at, look at the contrast between Jesus and me, between Jesus and you. We'll never be led into temptation by the Holy Spirit. James 1 is clear about that. And that's exactly where the, t the Holy Spirit leads him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Remember that the word temptation and try is the same. There's the word play. God will not try you beyond what you're able to bear, beyond what you, you can stand up against, but will himself provide the way out from it. And if you've ever heard anybody say about this verse that God must think you're strong because of what he's allowing you to go through, my Bible says that he will provide the way out of it. And I think God brings us into places that are far too hard for us to stand. God's confidence isn't in me or in you, it's in himself. He doesn't say, I'll only put on you as much as you can handle. He says, I'll only put on you as much as I can handle. And he'll provide a way out. But the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to be tried. Just look at the great contrast between Jesus here in the desert and Genesis 3. Adam fails in a garden. Jesus succeeds in the desert. Adam fails where there's abundant provision. Jesus succeeds hungry. Adam failed fighting what wasn't his. What do I mean by that? The temptation was to be like God. And he says, well, I want to be like God, but that wasn't Adam's place. But he tried to seize that place. Adam sinned fighting for what was not his. Jesus succeeded also fighting for what was not his. Because as the eternal son of God, he doesn't belong in the likeness of sinful flesh. As perfect, he certainly doesn't belong on the cross and most definitely doesn't belong in the grave. And so Adam fails fighting for what does not belong to him and Jesus succeeds fighting for what belongs to us. Adam didn't run from the temptation when he should have. Interestingly, neither did Jesus. He didn't run. He stayed and fought. If you're in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and you're hungry and Satan comes to you and offers bread, don't stay and fight. Turn and run. Whatever your version of that is, turn and run. Get out of there like Joseph. Take off as fast as you can. So fast, it's like the cartoons. 
gone. The clothes stay behind. Joseph left his coat in Potiphar's wife's hands. He was gone so fast. We run. Jesus doesn't. He stays and he fights and he succeeds. Adam had support. He was not there alone. He had Eve. Jesus is alone and hungry. But here's the good news. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And you don't have to be. Because Jesus succeeded in every way that you and I have failed. He succeeded in, in living perfectly where we cannot. He succeeded in dying for us a death he didn't deserve. He succeeded in not staying captive to the grave, whereas you and I cannot escape it. We simply have to trust him and turn from our sin. You cannot fight temptation until it starts there. By seeing who he is, by seeing what he's done, by seeing the great contrast he is to us and trusting him. My challenge to you today is this, my final challenge. Do you read your Bible as a, as a how-to-live manual? Anybody here ever heard that the that Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth? No, it does not. The Bible is not a how-to manual. It is a glory of Christ magnificent work. We succeed in living like this when we stop reading the Bible as a simple instruction manual and we start reading it to see the glory of Christ. That other stuff comes later. This is exactly what Paul speaks of in Romans 10. After chapter 9, struggling through the Jews having not believed the gospel... He says this, my brothers, uh, Romans 10, 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, his people, is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God, the true God, the one God, the only God, Yahweh of the Old Testament. They have a zeal for this God, but it is not according to knowledge. Why? Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. If you read God's word seeking to establish your own righteousness, you, like the Jews, will stumble, fail, and die. Because the message of Scripture is not that we can be righteous, but that he is righteous in our place. Not that we can earn God's salvation, but that we can be given the righteousness of Christ. And it's not that God won't transform us and make us holy, but the reality is, even in heaven, where we're sinless, we will be as in need of the righteousness of Christ applied to our account for eternity as today. We will never stop needing his righteousness. He will never stop being sufficient for us. So stop reading the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth. Before leaving earth. Because if you read it that way, 
when you leave earth, it will not be good. Because we can't establish our own righteousness. Yes, we can fight like Jesus. Yes, we should fight temptation. Yes, Scripture is full of instructions for us. But only after encountering the glory of Christ, who is nothing like us. Every page of the Bible is proclaiming his greatness. And if you open up your Bible and you don't see his greatness there, don't stop reading till you do. Even if you have to trade wealth and power and fame and jobs and times and recreation and meals, it is worth more than anything that can be offered by Satan in this world. Read it to see Christ. Read it to, read it to, to see his glory and his greatness and his perfection. You will not be disappointed. Lord, show us your glory. Show us your greatness. Let, let, let the things of this earth fade away in light of your glory and grace. Lord, we, we know that you're not calling us to, to live as, as hermits, that we don't re- have to reject all of the good things in the world. We just have to understand them rightly in their place. That work and family and recreation and, and food and friends and all of those things are wonderful gifts from you. To be enjoyed as gifts from you. But, but Lord, they all make lousy gods. And would you make us a people intent on pursuing your glory, seeing your righteousness, marveling and being amazed at all that you've done for us and and following your instructions so that we might be lifted up to the heights of joy, so that we might, might, might do all of the things that we do, whether they be hobbies or recreation or entertainment or sports or work or everything we do, for your glory. That we would seek to to let those things glorify you rather than seeking them, thinking that they will glorify us. Lord, let us, above all else, see Christ and proclaim Christ, that others may see and believe and glory in his righteousness as well. We ask it all for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen.